Que pasa Mufasa? Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast, a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm Dennis Walker, and today we are diving into the realms of depth psychology, liminal spaces, ancestral medicines, and psilocybin therapy with Simon Eugler, a licensed professional counselor and practitioner of depth medicine, which is the umbrella under which he operates. And we're going to get into exactly what that is in a moment. Simon hails from Portland, Oregon, and is a longtime friend who I've been in continuous dialogue with about psilocybin and plant medicines since our freshman year together at the University of San Francisco back in the fall of 2007. It's a real pleasure to bring that dialogue full circle today on the pod as we gear up for more laps around the bespectacled arena of psychedelic medicines and the collective transformation of society and our individual psyches throughout this exciting and dynamic age of the psychedelic renaissance. Simon has studied with indigenous cultures all over the world via his undergraduate training as an anthropology student who studied didgeridoo among the aboriginal culture in Northern Australia, also studying ayahuasca shamanism with the Shipibo culture in the Amazon basin of Peru. He's traveled overland across the African continent and embedded himself among local musicians throughout East Africa. He's also facilitated youth travel to places like Fiji for National Geographic student expeditions. So in a nutshell, Simon is a well-traveled, highly intelligent, cerebral fellow who's dedicated his life's work to the practice of psychedelic therapy and integration. This episode will be of particular interest to anyone who has skin in the psychedelic therapy game or who's hoping to pivot their therapy or counseling practice into that domain. We'll also touch on some of the challenges and growing pains of the commercialization of these therapies and molecules in the West in particular, and ponder on some of the macro narratives surrounding the liberalization of psychedelics into the free market. So hold on to your bootstraps, Michaelpreneurs. We're gonna get down to business right now. Simon Eugler, welcome to the Michaelpreneur podcast, old friend. It's going well, man. It's, it's good to talk to you, Dennis. So a little context for all you listeners, Simon and I have known each other for almost 15 years now. And Simon, it's a privilege to follow your journey from way back then as a wild-eyed and precocious youth like myself who had a gravitational attraction to and great reverence for the wisdom and intelligence of indigenous cultures and psychedelic compounds up through today where you have manifested each of those elements into an integral part of your life's work. And as a lifelong Oregonian and Portland resident, you are positioned at the vanguard of the emerging psychedelic medicine and therapy movement, which you embody in your professional practice via an approach you've labeled depth medicine. So let's start there. What exactly is depth medicine? Thanks for the, for the awesome intro, Dennis. Depth medicine is just a way of fusing two of my deepest loves, which are depth psychology, which is essentially what you know, we call the psychology of Carl Jung, archetypal psychology, mythology, um, things like Joseph Campbell, Robert Bly, if people are familiar with, with him and his work, um, with the emerging field of psychedelic medicine, which includes everything from, you know, Amazonian shamanism to, you know, these hyper clinical studies being done at Johns Hopkins um, and all of that good stuff. So I have a vested interest in your work in particular in your writing. And I want to call attention to an article you published back in 2017, which gained considerable traction at the time. The article is called Decolonizing Plant Medicines in the Sacred Valley of Peru. And the central theme of that article is perhaps encapsulated in the following line, quote, 
The sad truth is that many retreat centers are content to simply take these ancient traditions along with your money and give nothing back to the indigenous people. Now, with the reemergence of psychedelic compounds and ancestral medicines into the mainstream and massive worldwide demand for these medicines, a lot of companies and corporate interests have skin in the game. Wall Street is invested in psychedelic therapies, the political agenda is rearing down on them, and in a particularly egregious example of moneyed interest superseding spiritual domain, a handful of companies are trying to patent psilocybin therapy related practices, such as holding hands, using soft furniture, and using cannabis and psychedelic therapy, among other obnoxious pursuits. I'm curious about some of your observations on the potential continuity of colonialism in the emerging plant medicine space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, you know, it's interesting. It's like so much of the legacy of uh, science, I suppose. Um, so much of the time spent um, in science is kind of um, spent excavating and trying to discover and, and justify things that indigenous people have known for generations upon generations. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's a thing, you know, um, we need these clinical trials at places like Johns Hopkins and Imperial College London and all these centers of psychedelic research um, to essentially justify uh, in our, to our Western culture that these plants and medicines are, you know, therapeutic and, and, and have a use, um, especially, you know, when we're coming from the legacy of the drug war in the 20th century, which, you know, outlawed all of these things. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there is a absolutely 100% a colonial legacy that needs to be and, and should be grappled with in the psychedelic movement. And I personally don't see it happening in a lot of places. Um, I think culturally we're kind of still, um, we're, we're kind of still in the sort of excitement of this psychedelic renaissance as it's called um, and the deeper work of you know, looking into you know, the indigenous heritage with a lot of these medicines um, and the kind of colonial legacies that surround you know, our culture, right? That just are interwoven in this whole story uh, hasn't really begun to happen yet. My hope is that as these medicines affect more and more people, the, the plants and the medicines themselves are the teachers and I believe that they will, you know, impart that understanding to people over time that like, hey, something's not right here in your culture. Something's not right here in, in this legacy of what we now call the West. And that needs to be looked at. Thank you for that eloquent and succinct response. Now, now I don't think I've ever actually discussed this next topic with you. But when did you first develop an interest in psilocybin? I was a uh, curious adolescent, like many of us, and, you know, um, had a handful of really positive experiences in my youth um, and a handful of, of really um, intense and overwhelming experiences in my youth. And, and um, you know, there's one particular instance, I remember I, I must have been 15 or 16, 
and my friends in a, and I uh, ate a bunch of mushrooms <laughs> uh, at my friend's house. His parents weren't home. Uh, very, very quickly, things just started to disintegrate. And I found myself sort of adrift in this ocean of chaos. And, you know, the, the friends I was with there, I, I was just watching their psyches just absolutely crumble in front of me and it totally terrified me. So I just, you know, I just told myself I was going to go to bed and, <laughs> and sleep it off. Yeah, good luck. And, um, you know, about eight hours later, I emerged from, <laughs> from whatever that was. And I just kind of shook it off and I was like, oh my God, okay. There is a right way to do these things and there's a wrong way to do these things. And I want to figure out the right way. And I think that kind of set me on my path of reading people like Terrence McKenna. I think Terrence McKenna was like one of the most important guiding lights for me from 17 to 21. Yeah. So many of us, um, Food of the Gods, um, I think at 17 or 18, I read The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test uh, by Tom Wolfe, kind of a psychedelic classic. Um, and then, you know, just it just kind of spiraled from there. Um, I got into a lot of sort of the 2012 stuff that you and I were into when we were uh, living in San Francisco together and just the whole kind of explosion that was happening you know around kind of the early 2000s up till 2012 of ayahuasca really sort of coming into uh, a greater collective awareness and um yeah it's just it's just sort of been a thread throughout my life for for, for a long time so shortly after our freshman year at university of san francisco you transferred to the University of Vermont, and I believe it was around your sophomore year there that you received a grant to study didgeridoo in Australia, embedded in the Aboriginal culture there. I would imagine that experience served to shape your life path that you're currently on in a profound way. Can you tell us about what you experienced out there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I transferred to the University of Vermont and started studying anthropology and was lucky enough to have received, you know, this grant. Yeah, I, I spent a whole summer in Australia, about half of it kind of traveling around by buses and trains and whatnot, and then half of it in this community in an area called Arnhem Land, which is in the northern part of the Northern Territory. And Arnhem Land is a um, pretty massive Aboriginal land reserve, I guess. And there's a community up there called Yarkala, which is a pretty famous community uh, in Australia. It's sort of one of the homelands of the didgeridoo. You know, the didgeridoo is really only played by that particular group of people up there in Northeast Arnhem Land where I was. Um, and Yarkala is also famous because there's a band from there called Yothu Yindi who um, played at the Sydney opening ceremony for the Olympics. So it's a pretty uh, well-known community up there. And yeah, I found myself there um, as a young little 20-year-old, a whippersnapper. It was shortly thereafter, I believe, that you started publicly sharing your writing. And in particular, a few years after, you shared a lot of your writing on your website, Travel Alchemy. And eventually you started publishing work 
that explicitly connected you to the world of psychedelics and entheogens. When did you first gain the confidence to begin publicly sharing your experiences with and your support for psychedelic medicines? That's a good question. Um, I would say pretty recently, to be honest. Um, I mean, I remember like when you and I were growing up, you know, and I'm sure many people who are going to be listening to this when they were growing up, you know, it wasn't psychedelics were, they weren't um, something you would casually talk about. I think when I went to spend time in the Amazon, um, which was about five years ago, that kind of instilled in me the, just the importance of these things. But I don't know, really, um, to answer your question, man, I think something shifted for me in the last few years being um, a grad student and going through that process and um, trying to grapple with trying to walk the professional road of being a psychotherapist and then walk the, I guess, not so different road of being a psychedelic advocate and, you know, someone who's studied these things academically and personally. So, you know, really there's, there's an event that happened a year or two ago called um, Thank You Plant Medicine. Um, and I don't know who organized that. I want to say maybe some of the decriminalized nature folks. Um, I think it was also kind of its own um, platform. But that really inspired me to just be honest and be upfront. And then I think Michael Pollan's book, uh, How to Change Your Mind, was a pretty massive sort of opening, like a, like a door opening moment for a lot of people. Um, seeing like Tim Ferriss, who I've followed for many years, sort of so publicly speak about his, his support of psychedelic medicine. Um, yeah, I suppose kind of gave me the confidence to be like, okay, I'm not going to be, uh, you know, excommunicated from the psychotherapy establishment if I do this. So I've only recently assumed this public facing platform myself, thanks in a large part to friends like you and Michelle Janikian. And and other public figures like Tim Ferriss. In fact, a turning point for me to be public facing with my relationship to psilocybin was at a screening of the film Fantastic Fungi in 2019 in San Diego that had Paul Stamets and director Louis Schwartzberg in attendance. Stamets asked the audience afterwards, after the screening, they had a Q&A, Stamets asked the audience how many of us had taken psilocybin. This screening was a part of the Exponential Medicine Conference put on by Singularity University, which originated at NASA. And the film was screening at the main hall of the prestigious Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego, which is a total old guard establishment venue. And yet probably 75% of the people in attendance outed themselves publicly as having used psilocybin. And that critical mass really spoke to me. Now, in your thesis for your MA in counseling psychology, which is titled Lost Rights, Decolonizing Masculinity Through Psychedelic Initiation, Liminality, and Integration, there was quite a bit of material that strongly resonated with me, and I, I want to call upon one bit in particular. Quote, it's not enough to explore initiatory rights from a comfortable distance. Academic discourse alone will not affect meaningful change in society, end quote. And shortly after, you follow up with, a, with quote, the highest aspiration of this research is that it be brought into the world, put into practice, refined, collaborated on, and taught to others over a crackling fire somewhere, end quote. Now, 
you spoke a bit about your initiatory experience into the world of psilocybin, and I came in in much the same way, with no social mores or knowledgeable guides to help me truly effectively integrate the ecstatic experience of a high-dose psilocybin trip into the daily flow of Western culture. Throughout your studies and journeys, what are some strategies that you've discovered to help Western men in particular integrate or make sense of and meaningfully apply insights gleaned from their psychedelic experiences? Man, that is such a huge question. Um, and I'm so excited to, to just sort of wonder about that. But I also, <laughs> I also have to reflect my, like some of my earliest memories of you, Dennis, at when we were at USF, uh, I remember when I met you, you were this like uh, uh, baseball player, sort of like athlete dude. And over the course of a year living in San Francisco, just watching you like shed these layers to yourself. And then by the end of that first year, you were like an entirely different creature. Uh, you know, like each time you took psychedelics, it was like a different layer of Dennis was shed. So. <laughs> There's still shedding going on, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> and now here we are. Um, but yeah, man, to answer your question, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, that's such a huge, <clears throat> such a huge question. And, you know, my initial response would be something to the effect of, you know, a weekend uh a weekend journey ain't gonna do it uh, kind of like a a a one-off sort of um individualized uh let's say clinical and um expensive experience isn't gonna do it that you <clears throat> pay for and, you know, I'm not, I'm not really speaking to the sort of um, capitalistic sides of that. <clears throat> what I'm trying to speak to is um, our concept of like the one and done and the quick fix and the magic bullet. That's really what I'm trying to speak to. And I think that's something that needs to be really examined and um, kind of processed um, as we sort of begin to try, <clears throat> begin to try to fit these medicines into our culture because our culture loves the quick fix. Um, and, you know, psychedelics are rapidly becoming the new exciting quick fix that are gonna solve depression and they're gonna solve anxiety and gonna solve addiction and all these things. And it's like, yes, there are massive potentials for the treatment of those conditions, right? For the treatment of that kind of suffering. But, you know, your question, Dennis, was about integration and how to yes. integrate these medicines into our culture. Um, and, you know, Terrence McKenna has, has just volumes of things to say about this. But what I would say is that, um, you know, it behooves us to try to examine our ways of doing things, which is the sort of one-off, one-and-done weekend experience, and then you go back to whatever sort of uh, corporate or tech or office job you might have. Um, I don't think that's going to do it. I think uh, approaching it 
approaching an, a deeper level of integration would look like um, extended experiences, let's say a week uh, or longer um, with a you know, committed and consistent group of people who are sort of in it together, right? With a shared intention to um, be vulnerable with each other and to see the dark parts of each other and to support each other in their healing, to be witnessed in their own healing, right? And to witness others in theirs. Uh, I think that's an incredibly rare thing in our culture. It's why sort of these, you know, um, raves or festivals or like parties or have been so impactful for so many people because it's a moment of sort of collective healing and collective process right so yeah i think we need longer experiences i think we need uh sort of a community type uh organism to sort of coalesce around these things even if it's temporary right and to experience something of, you know, to experience something that all of our ancestors knew, which was something of a kind of village functionality of being with each other, right? Sharing meals, um, doing things together, just spending time together. Uh, I'm really kind of talking about like the retreat model for these things. And I think that is the way that things are gonna be going. Of course, there's gonna be you know, um, plenty of clinics and whatnot doing these kind of one-off sessions for people to come and get their shot in the arm of psilocybin or whatever it is. But I don't, I don't think that is uh, going to integrate these medicines in the way that maybe you and I are talking about or thinking about. Let's touch on the topic of stewardship briefly. My understanding of your work and of depth medicine is that a large part of an individual's health is dynamically and intimately linked to the health of the systems and the communities in which they're embedded. And the communities which many people in our Western culture are beholden to are arguably quite sick and scatterbrained, especially these days. As someone who is in a position of relative influence and who has knowledge and experience of these powerful psychedelic medicines and therapies, what does it mean to be a good steward of the psychedelic renaissance? Well, I don't know if I have the answer, but um, my, my sense is that um, stewardship is about two things. And these, those two things I would say are relationship and responsibility. And you know, if you're a steward of something, you you have a um, you have a deeper relationship with whatever it is that you are stewarding. Whether if it's a piece of land, um, you know, um, a tradition, whatever, um, there is a there is a responsibility within that relationship to um, yeah to protect whatever it is that you're stewarding and to kind of occupy a place of guardianship uh, where, you know, we're not really kind of trying to be um, like the psychedelic police or anything like that. But uh, I would say stewardship kind of implies um, the 
responsibility to you know be able to say point out when something is going wrong right if if there's something that is being done out of integrity or something that is um clearly you know causing harm right that is part of the responsibility of stewardship so that can look like anything from like sustainable harvesting practices with regards to plant medicine especially something like ayahuasca and peyote which are being extremely over harvested right now um to you know in your immediate community if there is a practitioner or a provider or a clinic that has a sort of of you know being uh, out of integrity or or harming people right like that is everyone's responsibility if you know they um want this kind of level of of stewardship um, and relationship building off of that framing of the concept of stewardship both of us have been fortunate to learn about ancestral medicines in the amazon and over the course of my studies there, I became very aware of a number of unscrupulous foreign-owned lodges that were profiting heavily off of ayahuasca tourism and doing considerable damage to both the local communities and their clientele. There was no gatekeeper, and pretty much anyone with some loot in the bank could waltz in and open up shop and start selling ayahuasca retreat packages. And now with the painting commercialization of psilocybin, and retreat experiences, etc. there's definitely the potential for these unscrupulous providers to position themselves as legitimate healing operations and to exploit very vulnerable populations of people seeking help. We are already seeing this in an unofficial and underground capacity in some cases, and also seeing it with some of the ibogaine treatment centers in Mexico and rehab facilities in the United States. What are some ways to mitigate this potential dark side to the commercialization of psilocybin treatment? Really important question. Yeah. Um, I know, at least here in Oregon, part of Measure 109, which we just passed in November, is essentially the establishment of a state-run board to regulate the practice of psilocybin therapy and psilocybin clinics. There's a bit of animosity or sort of discourse about that a lot of people believe that psilocybin should be you know free, freely available to whoever whenever wherever um and there's a lot of people who think you know actually this should be a regulated substance with standards and and whatnot um you know uh i i think measure 109 is 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 uh, incredible i think it's it's a absolutely historical ballot measure and um, I, I actually do think that the intention to have a kind of work is really important because when we don't have something like that, um, you know, we get what, what happened, what, what is happening, you know, in a place like Iquitos in Peru, where it's just the wild west and it's whoever has the most money, uh, right, which are usually foreigners, can set up whatever kind of operation they want with no responsibility, with no sort of protocols, with no oversight. And uh, inevitably um, people get harmed. So, you know, I, I really like what Measure 109 is, is you know, um, going to sort of instill 
here in Oregon. I think it's a really progressive and, and well thought out measure. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I think of course there's like the, the balancing act of um, not wanting these things to be so gate kept that you can only sort of access or you can only participate in them if you have, let's say a lot of money or, um, you know, if, if you're diagnosed with treatment resistant depression, right? Um, psilocybin, for example, can benefit many more people than are diagnosed with treatment resistant depression. So, you know, I think we're just gonna see over the next five years or so kind of this uh, sort of hashing out of how we're gonna do this. I mean, we're in the wild west right now. We're in the psychedelic wild west. And um, along with that is um, everyone's scrambling to put together clinics and sort of get this training and that training. And I mean, I get ads on social media about like from organizations I've never heard of that look like they were just put together, you know, a week ago about, oh, like become a psilocybin uh, facilitator and like, oh, this training and that. And it's like, who, where did, they, where did these organizations come from? You know, so we're definitely in a gold rush. And I think there's gonna be uh, a little bit of craziness for, for a little bit, but my hope is that, um, you know, we figure out a way to move forward uh, in a good way. You've charted quite a path from your teenage years in Portland, being thrown headfirst into the psychedelic realms up till now, where you are professionally navigating these quote liminal spaces. To draw from your thesis again, I'm curious how your views on psilocybin and entheogens have changed over time. Have there been any overt changes in the way you regard psychedelics when you were a young whippersnapper versus today as a professional therapist? Wow, that is a amazing question. Uh, I don't think I've ever asked myself that. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I wanna flip that on its head for a second, right? And just kind of start with actually what, what has stayed the same um, because to me, what, you know, what has stayed the same is the um, initiatory potential of psychedelic experience. And when I say that, I mean the, the notion that psychedelics can open um, our minds, our psyches, our souls to things that we, we did not know before, right? Can, show us things that we did not know before and can take us to places in ourself that we had never contacted before. So I think that's been one of the most sort of consistent, um, you know, view, views that I've had. Um, I think that's kind of what drew me to entheogens in the first place was this sort of desire to self-initiate, right? Because uh, we don't have those rites of passage and initiation rites in our culture. So, uh, you know, we're gonna seek them out one way or another. And for me and, and, and for yourself, you know, it was through psychedelics. Um, <clears throat> but to answer your question, I think um, what has changed for me over time is the importance of 
integration. Um, I don't think integration as a concept really existed uh, for me, at least, um, you know, until I began like a real in-depth study of this stuff. Um, and especially like noticing my own journey with psychedelics, you know, spending a month and a half in the Amazon um, and really needing to take uh, a lot of time after that, like years to make sense of those experiences and to, to try to like let those experiences settle into my in my body and all those things, right? Um, and quick fix is, um, you know, not really allowing integration or part of like the, our kind of cultural mode of consumption is to consume and move on to the next thing. Uh, and I think that psychedelics uh, really, really behoove us to integrate properly. So that's probably been the biggest thing that's changed for me is understanding the importance of integration. To ideate on that for a moment, I suppose one overt way I've changed over the years is that I've reduced my urge to evangelize for psilocybin in an aggressive way, meaning that I'm more invested in designing and realizing my own life's purpose as opposed to trying to insist that other people explore this path. And as we've seen from true practitioners and guardians of ancestral medicines, you come to them, not the other way around. Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. They're not, uh, they're not trying to sell you their tradition. I'm fascinated with this psychedelic gold rush that we spoke about earlier. With the emergence of psilocybin and psychedelics into the Western capitalist market, there are billions of dollars being thrown around by different stakeholders and consortiums as everyone tries to position themselves for psychedelic company IPOs and new mushroom products and this and that. I mean, Compass Pathways, which is backed by the infamous Peter Thiel, had a billion dollar IPO and they are literally trying to patent holding hands and using soft furniture and psilocybin therapy sessions, even trying to patent client behaviors like lying down on a bed or couch during psilocybin therapy sessions. I mean, what the fuck? It is fascinating how five years ago, almost no one was talking about mushrooms. And then all of a sudden in the year 2021, we see MAPS founder Rick Doblin on a national primetime spot on CNN and ESPN is reporting on psilocybin. We see massive amounts of mainstream media coverage and, and hedge funds throwing their weight behind mushroom science and innovation. Right as our civilization and culture are being stretched to their limits and with all of the insanity unfolding over the last year. Hmm. Yeah, and what, what comes up for me as you talk about that is kind of the uh, depth, psychological or metaphorical kind of um, uh, meaning of some of that, which I, I just can't help but like um, sort of wonder about, which is, you know, let's actually look at what mushrooms do, right? Mushrooms are the great um, composters of the earth. Mushrooms like break down and eat and alchemize substances, right? And like, if anyone's been paying attention, um, shit's kind of breaking down right now in the world in uh, various countries, including, you know, our, our country of origin, right? So how interesting 
that now in the year 2020, when uh, things are on fire all over the world and um, you know, political and governmental systems are clearly breaking down, um, right? That, the, that these ancient organisms called mushrooms are making such a massive resurgence, almost like they're coming through the very concrete of our culture, right? To do their work of decomposition. Bingo. And that's where the spirit of the mycopreneur comes in for my money with more humans paying closer attention to the message that mushrooms have for us, which is one of transformation, regeneration, and symbiosis with the natural world. What can we undesign and redesign together in our world with focused and extended collaboration between humanity and the mushroom kingdom? We already know that mycelium is an extraordinary construction medium where people are even designing houses and furniture out of mushrooms. People like Ecovative out in New York are creating fully compostable packaging materials out of mycelium. NASA is funding astromycology projects to terraform asteroids and alien planets, meaning, I mean, the food system, the healthcare system, the energy sector, materials, you name it, mushroom technology has virtually limitless applications when channeled appropriately. So really the whole idea behind this podcast is to get people jazzed about solving problems with mushrooms because we've got a lot of problems we need to solve in a very short amount of time. I love it, man. It's, uh, it, mushrooms are the great alchemists of nature and uh, we're entering a, a very alchemical era of, of history. So how perfect. Um, Paul Stamets talks about um, this phenomenon that he deemed mycophobia which is the, our, you know, our cultural fear of mushrooms. And uh, I'm, I, you can find him give talks on it on YouTube and whatnot, but it is, a, it is something to uh, examine. You know, we have a cultural fear of mushrooms. Um, you know, eat the bad mushrooms, um, all, all these kinds of stories that we've inherited for actually centuries, right? This isn't a new thing, um, but it is really interesting, right? That now mushrooms are making such a massive resurgence in all these areas that you're talking about, not just psychedelic medicine, but actual micro-remediation, packaging, building, all this incredible potential, right? Um, at this, this time when everything seems to be breaking down, right? It's like the mushrooms are finally sort of like, telling, you know, trying, finally, like giving us the message, like, hey, are you, are you paying attention yet? Because, you know, this is what we do. We break things down in order to make new things. I really hope to see more brilliant minds and people and professions that are historically indifferent or apathetic towards mushroom science start to pick up on what they actually are, which for my money is an advanced natural technology and intelligence that is absolutely fundamental to life on earth and beyond at the micro and macro level for personal growth, prosperity, and for community betterment. Simon, I think that's a great note to end on for today. Our dialogue about psilocybin and the mushroom universe has been ongoing for almost 15 years. And today we captured a small window of that dialogue. I'm very grateful we were able to put this on record and to share it. You are a wonderful human being, Simon Eugler, and I'm a great admirer of you and of your life's work. I really appreciate you coming on the Mycopreneur podcast today to talk shop and drop knowledge. Absolutely, Dennis. It was my pleasure. Good to talk to you as always. 
There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at mycopreneur podcast, that's the handle, don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Michaelpreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Michaelpreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Michaelpreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the... Thanks for stopping by the Mycopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.